Revelation 17. And um, this morning we're going to be considering uh, chapter 17 and 18 as we look at the fall of Babylon. And um, you can tell that we're moving uh, rather swiftly toward the end of the book of Revelation. And at this point in time, uh, as far as the chronology goes, we have seen the um, breaking of the seals, the sounding of the trumpets, and then ultimately the outpouring of God's uh, wrath upon uh, humanity that is in rebellion to Him with the pouring out of the bowls. Um, those events occur beginning prior to the tribulation period, and moving into the tribulation, they, they occur over time as things heat up and intensify. And we have seen, uh, although I have not uh, belabored the point, shall I say, in earlier chapters, but we have seen that the tribulation is more or less divided into uh, two uh, parts. There's the early section, the first three and a half years, and then there's the latter section, uh, and the last three and a half years of the seven years of Great Tribulation. And it's uh, in that period of time that we're going to see that today's uh, portion of the Revelation begins to factor in. Because the Antichrist rises to power first as a human ruler. He is kind of like the answer man. And he has uh, solutions for some of the uh, incredible problems that, that the world is facing on a global scale. But then as time goes along, he kind of sells himself to the devil. And uh, over a period of time, it's as if he becomes uh, Satan incarnate uh, as he yields himself completely to diabolical uh, power and schemes and, and the uh, hatred for God and the people of God. And, and so this whole business with the Antichrist factors into the fall of Babylon as we kind of look at it this morning. Um, these chapters, I will tell you in advance, are, are difficult to understand. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's folly to try to uh, dial down to the precise meaning of everything that happens in Revelation. Um, some of these things, I believe, we're going to recognize when we see them, but we're not going to recognize them by, by reading the material. Um, there's mystery here, just as the Old Testament prophets... The scripture says, long to look into and understand and experience the things they prophesied about. And sometimes they, they weren't sure what they were prophesying about. They were uh, reporting as God was directing them. And they were giving us events that were going to happen in the future. But they themselves did not fully comprehend the unfolding and the meaning of those events until... In the New Testament, we find that they were uh, played out in history precisely as they had prophesied. 
But sometimes um, the passages seem obscure. For example, the passage that says, Out of Egypt I have called my son. We didn't know what that meant until Jesus was driven with his parents into the land of Egypt uh, as uh, Herod sought to slaughter all of the, the children. Um, oh, the city escapes my mind. Help me out. Bethlehem. Is it Bethlehem? Yeah, Rachel crying for her children. Okay. That's what happens when you get old. (laughs) But it wasn't until then that we understood what it meant for Jesus to be called out of Egypt. And so we see these kinds of things in Revelation, and as we, we look at them, we say, I wonder what that means. I wonder exactly how that's going to to be identified. And to become dogmatic over those issues is a bit foolish. Because John is uh, looking at, remember, this panoramic overview of the end times. Everything he writes is not necessarily in chronological order. Um, He tells us scenes as he sees them. In fact... We learn three times in these chapters that Babylon has fallen. Well, it didn't fall three times, it only fell once. But he gives us different images of that fall and what it looked like. And so, uh, as we read this, um, don't let the obscurities of some of the terminology confuse you. I'll give you some information and insight on what I do understand from study. Uh, and then I will also tell you, uh, rather simply, that commentators disagree. Uh, those that think Revelation was all fulfilled in the first century uh, won't agree with anything I have to say this morning. <laughs> and those uh, who are dispensationalists are going to see it in a very different light. And those of us who see Revelation as being a prophetic book that has uh, the future in focus and some of the things that are going to happen uh, might agree a little more closely. So, without further introduction, Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels... Can I say something parenthetical? I said I was... Okay, Revelation 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come... I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. Now, you know in Scripture that uh, adultery uh, and prostitution is often used metaphorically. Uh, It refers to people who commit idolatry against God. And in fact, that is the nature of that throughout these chapters. Uh, Babylon is seen as the great harlot, the great uh, prostitute, because she enticed other kings and other countries uh, with her jewels and, and her promises but essentially, it, it uh, was not necessarily related to sexual immorality. It was related to drawing them away from God to become idolaters 
in their worship and in their behavior. And that was the nature of her uh, adultery, was pulling people away from God. Verse 3, Then the angel carried me away into the spirit, into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name on her forehead, which was written, was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides and the seven heads and ten horns. As we look at this great uh, mother of prostitutes, we find that she is riding a beast with seven heads and ten horns. The beast is actually um, the Antichrist who is now uh, more or less Satan himself um, filling and driving that, uh, that Antichrist person. And uh, the city is riding on top of the beast that is filled with satanic power. One of the things that this passage brings out, and it's, it's, uh, it's something that we need to get hold of, particularly as um, we move toward election time, because people often uh, attempt to view uh, political leaders as having <clears throat> answers for us. They don't. Um, all human government, though sanctioned by God, nonetheless rides upon a beast that is the impersonation of Satan. He is the prince of the power of the air and the God, small g, of this world. And we need to recognize that all governments in all nations, to some extent or another, are driven by the power of Satan. They're driven by the enemy. And the nature of government is power. And that power is uh, manifest in, in a multitude of different ways. Uh, some governments thrive on wealth and the economy. Others thrive on dominance and, and just raw power. But in essence, the thing that drives human government to one extent or another is the satanic forces and powers behind it. And 
we need to, to see that, as I said, though God sanctions government, remember what the Scripture says in Romans, He that bears the sword does not do so in vain, but is a minister of God, avenging his righteousness upon the ungodly. With no government, there's anarchy and disaster. If there's no government, sin takes over unchecked, and people devour one another. I don't care how you feel uh, about other human beings. You, you may have the most altruistic motives uh, imaginable. In fact, as followers of God and, and believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to love uh, all human beings and have a great uh, desire for their well-being. But friends, you're in the minority. Most people want what they want. They want to get ahead. They want to dominate. They want to have control. They, they want to grab whatever they can get hold of. That's the nature of human beings. And it plays itself out in a multitude of ways. And without any kind of government, the sin nature of human beings unchecked would turn any civilization into anarchy and disaster, and there would be murder and madness and mayhem constantly. So government is a good thing. It, it's one of those uh, dynamic tensions that God permits in this world to bring some kind of rule of law and order. However, no government is pure. No government is genuinely altruistic. And politicians as a class desire power. Now, many of them start out to serve the people. But they don't all end up that way. And in many countries, there's no pretense of serving the people. It's the, the strongest and the fittest and the ablest and the person with the biggest guns that wins the day. And they're out for power so that they can have their way. And we need to recognize that to one extent or another, every government on the planet is riding on the back of Satan and driven by demonic power to accomplish purposes that run counter to God. The United States of America may be one of the few exceptions in the history of the world that was founded, in essence, uh, for a desire of religious freedom that was oriented in the Christian tradition. But it did not take us long to stray from the purposes and plans of the beginning and our forefathers. And today we're a disaster. And the corruption that we see in government today, 
Rowena read me something last night from the from the paper that um, not not the paper but from the internet that's kind of interesting. In the state of Illinois, you wonder why your taxes are some of the highest in the United States. The the state of Illinois is in such debt that the debt per taxpayer is equal to $47,000. So, do you ever see that ending? No, not hardly. Uh, People who pay $9,000 a year in homeowner taxes here uh, can go south a little bit and pay $700 a year. Uh, Illinois is in a mess because of corruption. The United States is in a mess because of corruption. We're just in a mess. And we're better off than most of the rest of the world. The world is in a disaster. We we need to understand as believers that we look for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God that we are not going to find respite and solutions and true uh, security in the governments of this world. They all have gone astray. And power is the motivating drive behind the majority of political entities. So... As he looks and sees this blasphemous woman who is uh, decked with all kinds of jewels and beautiful dress, she is riding on the head of the dragon that has seven horns and ten, uh, seven heads and ten horns. And verse, uh, Seven, he says, then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. Now, that's a curious statement. The the beast on which she rides... Once was, now is not, yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, yet will come. Really? What's he talking about? He's seeing a scene at the end of the tribulation. And when we move into chapter 19, we're going to see the return of Jesus Christ. And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he will establish a kingdom that will last for a thousand years. And John is seeing this destruction of Babylon and the return of Christ in in one image uh, of the mural that he's looking at. 
And as he sees that, he sees that the beast, who had risen to incredible power, suddenly is not to be found. He once was. He now is not. But he will come back out of the abyss. And as we study the rest of Revelation, we're going to discover that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, the beast, that is the Antichrist, and Satan, that old serpent, is going to be bound for a thousand years. He's going to disappear from the planet. He's going to be confined to the abyss, and he will not be able to influence or exercise power over the hearts of men and women uh, during that thousand-year reign of Christ. But at the end of the thousand years, as a test of those whose hearts have truly followed Jesus out of desire rather than necessity, because he will be the only king, Satan will be allowed to come out of the abyss for a short season. And there will be a great final rebellion before the ultimate judgment. And so what John is seeing here is that the beast disappears, is cast into the abyss for a while, but then he comes back from the abyss and he leads this final rebellion right at the very end of Human history as we know it. This calls for a mind, verse 9, with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. Wow. (laughs) There's another mouthful. But um, let me just say as a preface to this paragraph that that for many, many years, and um, there are many people today who believe that the great city Babylon is actually Rome because of the reference to the seven hills, uh, and that Rome uh, is the representation, uh, obviously not in John's day because it didn't exist, but in contemporary uh, church history, they look at this as, as the Catholic Church, and they look at the Antichrist as the Pope. Um, I don't buy that. I don't think that's at all what it's talking about. Um, as as the, the scripture says, the seven hills, uh, the seven heads and the seven hills on which the woman sets are also seven kings. I believe that what they're talking about is kingdoms. And in the scriptures, uh, mountains or hills are often metaphorically used for kingdoms or dominions under a king. Um, All of my holy mountain. Yes, there is a a literal mountain, 
but um, God is referring to his kingdom as dwelling upon the earth on his holy mountain, the one that is risen up in his name. And so the, the likelihood is that these, this is not a geographical reference, but is a reference to the seven kingdoms that are associated with the Antichrist. And as time goes along, these kingdoms will get progressively worse. What are these seven kingdoms? Well, pick a commentary off the shelf and read it, and everyone will have a different view. Okay, so I'm not going to pretend to to be smarter than all of them and tell you who the seven kingdoms are. I have no idea. But there's some succession, and it may go way back in history. I mean, it may go all the way back uh, to to, uh, Egypt, uh, and even before that, to the Chaldeans, and then Egypt, and and come through history, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and whatever. I, I don't know how far back this goes or how current it is, but there are seven kingdoms that grow progressively worse and stand out in dominance as we move toward the end of time. And then it says, The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. What does that mean? Well, this is that switch over somewhere during the tribulation where the seventh king sells out to Satan so thoroughly that Satan begins to rule through him directly. I'm not going to say that he becomes the incarnation of of Satan. Um, I think that's taking it a little too far. But Satan, remember, does try to duplicate Jesus in many, many respects. And to thoroughly inhabit human flesh and control it uh, directly is one of his goals. And so how is it that the eighth king becomes one of the, is actually one of the seven? Don't you have eight? No. You have a seventh king who in his reign sells out so thoroughly to Satan that a transition occurs with the same person. And that person becomes the satanic representative upon the earth. He moves from a powerful, evil man to a satanically controlled and driven man. And Satan actually begins to manifest through him. And so, therefore, the eighth king is the transformation of the seventh who sells out to the devil. And then he says, the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, 
and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, and nations. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Here's an interesting thing. The kingdoms of Satan turn on themselves. There's actually civil war. And the prostitute who has been riding the beast, which means that the satanic antichrist has been ruling within her city walls, in essence, finds that she is not playing along with him as much as he wants. And so he makes a pact with ten mini-kings, M-I-N-I, ten mini-kings. And these little kings don't last very long, but for one hour they sell out to the Antichrist to gain power uh, so they can accomplish their goal. And what they do is, they actually overthrow, in essence, Babylon. So there's civil war in the satanic kingdom. And these ten smaller kings receive power from Satan in order to come against Babylon and bring its destruction. And notice what the scripture says. The, the, ten, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Verse 16, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish His purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. In other words, jealousy rises up among the uh, sub-dominions, the smaller kingdoms. And they join with the Antichrist in rebellion to overthrow Babylon. And the Scripture says that God has put it in their hearts to punish Babylon with their own people. In other words, evil humanity rising against evil humanity. They're out to destroy one another. And civil war erupts uh, right at the end of this tribulation period. And so uh, Satan is actually uh, guiding this, but he's doing so under the direction of God as these uh, smaller kings uh, seek to work together to overthrow Babylon. Uh, verse uh, chapter 18. Are you with me? Are you following all of this? This is, this is deep stuff, okay? Chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sin, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion for her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For the Lord, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Now, I want to pause there and just point out why the other people of the world are sad. They're mourning Babylon, not because Babylon was destroyed and it was a great judgment. No, they're mourning Babylon because she was the source of their wealth. It was to Babylon and through Babylon that they became wealthy with cargoes of gold and silver and precious stone and pearls and fine linen, purple silk and scarlet cloth and every sort of sweet-smelling wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses, carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. And they will say, The fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In other words... Part of the idolatry of Babylon 
was the lure of materialism. Remember, this is at the end of the tribulation. And do you remember all those plagues and all those horrible things that God has poured out and that man has done to itself? Somehow or another, Satan has managed to uh, kind of patch things up. And Babylon has become a place of wealth. And they have lured the, the people of the world with the promise of materialistic gain. And in so doing, uh, they have drawn the world away from God toward luxury and comfort and materialism and possessions of all kind of, of wealthy things. We need to recognize, we need to recognize that the things that draw us away from God are often the things that we want. They are the things that give us comfort and bring us riches and give us a kind of security. But notice that the ships and the merchants and the people that see the smoke of Babylon as it goes up and lament and mourn over her have in a single moment lost their market and their wealth. There is no security on this planet outside of Jesus Christ. There is no safe haven there is no place of rest. There is no guarantee of provision. Uh, we can, and I'm not saying that, that we don't live prudently, but we can store up wealth. Look at just a few years back when, when the markets crashed. You know, and I remember people saying, I've lost half or more than half of all of my retirement like that. Okay, you know, I remember one fellow who lost $100,000, just an ordinary person, not a wealthy person, who had been saving all of his life for retirement, $100,000 gone in the blink of an eye. Never to come back. It was done. There is no security on this earth. You see, I'll put my savings in gold. That's not going to work. All the government has to do is say, turn your gold in. Anybody found with gold after such and such a day, it's going to be shot. End of story. I'll keep mine in cash under the mattress. And then they start printing the bills in red. And your green cash has no value. There is no security here. None. There is nothing that you can put your hope and trust in, in this earth, that will guarantee your future. Other than Jesus Christ. He is the only hope. And... Babylon lures people away from God with the promise of wealth. That's the goal. 
And by the way, who is Babylon? Well, the best that I can come up with is I've studied in the city that sits upon the waters in the, in the Old Testament. The only way that water could be brought into Babylon was through a whole network of underground um, water supplies and systems and whatever. It's literally Babylon in Iraq. It's literally the ancient city of Babylon. And in all probability, that will be the future city of Babylon, that location. And that conjures up all kinds of ideas of kind of where this thing is going and who's going to be driving it. And ultimately, in verse um, 19, the Scripture says, They will throw dust on their heads with weeping and mourning, cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through their wealth, and one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered upon the earth. Babylon comes to a total, complete destruction. But, Jerusalem is raised up never to be thrown down again as the King of Kings comes upon the land. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see the truth behind human government, human wealth, possessions, and this false security of riches stored on this planet. Give to us wisdom, Lord, to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, knowing that our future and our hope is in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.